Let's go on to your patient with metastatic okay. R2-positive disease, Steve. Sure. So this patient is now late 40s at this point. The interesting thing in this patient, before we even talk about her presentation, is that her sister was diagnosed at age 42 with breast cancer, and I believe it was her mother had breast cancer also. So this clearly was a family that was likely to have a genetic abnormality. She had had routine mammography, but nothing more than that, and presented in January 2005, four years ago, with a left breast abnormality. I won't even say a palpable mass. She brought it to the attention of the physicians, and she had the concern that, given the family history, that this was an abnormality that needed to be taken care of. And she ultimately had a biopsy of the lesion, which was a lobular carcinoma, ER positive, PR positive, and HER2 by immunohistochemistry was zero. Her surgeon, I met her after this, but her surgeon did a workup which included a bone scan, which was an interesting scan at presentation in that it was read as either normal or likely a super scan in that every bone in the body was involved. And our radiologists at the time were unwilling to say that this was absolutely a super scan. In retrospect, that's in fact what it was. A subsequent PET scan was in fact positive virtually in every bone in the body. So she presented with extensive bony metastatic disease and a small primary that was biopsied only by core biopsy. As I remember this, and we discussed it today, her sister had had a rapidly progressive disease and died about three years after presentation. Did you take care of her sister? One of my partners did. Wow. And in fact, we knew her sister. Wow. I had never met this patient. And interestingly, also, the patient, this patient, had cared for her as a surrogate mom for her sister's daughter, who's now in her 30s, after her sister died. This patient asked me, Apparently, the tumor, she was well aware that her sister's tumor was HER2 negative, and we had discussions about the fact that it appeared that her tumor was HER2 negative based on the core biopsy, but after a lot of discussion, I actually did a bone marrow in this patient also, knowing that every bone in the body seemed to be involved, at least cortical bone, and in fact made a pathologic diagnosis of breast cancer from the bone, and that tumor was ERPR positive. HER2 amplified at 2.5. Did she have an IEC also? No. And so it looks like... I quit the, while I was ahead. <laughs> yeah, it looks like she had it. And so the core biopsy was tested by IHC at an outside hospital, and it was zero. And then the metastatic site in the bone marrow was tested locally in Steve's hospital by fish only. Actually, was, that, was sent, that was sent out, the fish. Was a, Correct. Was, was it was, a, was, was processed was process, in yeah. your la in your yeah. hospital and sent to a uh, central a lab, reference lab. Yeah. a reference lab, and it was fish positive. So the core was IHC negative. The metastasis was fish positive. And we didn't go back and do fish on the core. So we don't know whether these are true results or whether we have a false negative result in the IHC done elsewhere. So, Antonio, I spent about an hour interviewing Mike Press yesterday. Very interesting discussion, talking a lot about the ASCO CAP paper or project that you headed looking at the issue of HER2 positivity and his sort of rebel group that just published, I don't know if rebel is the right word, but, you know, alternative viewpoint point of view that just, they just published a paper in the JCO about that. Can you reflect back on that sort of controversy? 
Yeah, the whole question that Mike raises, and for the sake of disclosure, actually, Mike is a member of the ASCO CAP panel that ultimately issued guidelines that were published in JCO and the archives of PATH and lab medicine two years ago in 2007. The whole premise behind that document is that essentially you may not have the thinking of many, that you may not have the best or the right test, but ultimately what may matter is that whatever test you do, that you do it right. And I think what has been observed and the data from the NCCTG 9831 intergroup trial of adjuvant trastuzumab when looking early on, midway, and at the end of the study on the correlation of IHC and the correlation of FISH done locally versus done centrally at the Mayo Clinic, is that there was a high preponderance of uh, percentage of patients with false positive results, ultimately about 12% for FISH and 18% for immunohistochemistry. And so those kinds of data, what they do tell us is that, at least for me and for many others, is that the issue of quality of the test is critical. And that may not be simply reflected by whether it's a reference lab or a local lab. In the CAP ASCO document, there was a minority view expressed by Mike very emphatically in that actually because gene amplification is the primary mechanism for HER2 overexpression in that essentially you don't have the phenomenon of lack of amplification, immunohistochemistry, positivity is something that biologically does not exist or at least doesn't make sense and if it does exist, it's not clinically meaningful. His view is that, and by his colleagues, is that measures of gene amplification should be preferentially utilized. And I will agree that if you tell me that FISH is going to be done with the standards that a Michael Press can do and the quality that he can offer, by all means, he does it incredibly well. And in his hands, or if done like the way he does, no question that FISH is likely to be superior than immunohistochemistry. And actually, Mike had a very nice paper, which was just published in both clinical cancer research in December 08, as well as JCO in December 08. In the JCO, the paper was led by Angelo DeLeo, and this was a study of paclitaxel plus minus lapatinib in patients as first-line metastatic breast cancer. And the study actually allowed patients with any kind of HER2 status to go on study positive or negative, and there were about close to 600 patients ultimately enrolled. And there was a subset of about 100 or so patients that were ultimately considered HER2 positive. When the study was initially reported by HER2 status on the basis of the test done centrally at a reference lab, there was a suggestion that patients with HER2 negative disease were benefiting from the addition of lapatinib to paclitaxel. And this was, to a degree, different than what we would have expected in the sense that 
would appear in the metastatic disease that these agents are only effective in patients with HER2-positive disease. However, Michael then retested these specimens in his own central lab at USC. And when he did it, actually, he did observe that there was a large number of patients that had been considered HER2-positive at the central commercial lab that in reality were HER2-negative when he repeated the same fish assay done in his hands. And the lesson from that study was actually that the major difference was actually that in the commercial reference lab, the slides were not reviewed by a pathologist. And when he did it, he actually reviewed them himself. And this is actually a major recommendation from the ASCO-CAP document in that the final determination needs to be done by a pathologist. And so his view in the paper that was just published in JCO is that for various reasons, FISH is going to be, or measures of gene amplification will be superior to immunohistochemistry. But I still believe that in routine testing elsewhere in the community, HER2 testing is not centralized, is done all over the country. In some other countries, it can be done more centrally by reference labs. But even when done by reference labs, the issue of quality becomes critical. And I think we have the perfect example that was in the news not too long ago of the problems with ER testing in Newfoundland in Canada, where a substantial number of women were called as having ER negative disease, and when in reality they had your positive disease and were denied adjuvant anti-estrogen therapy. So I want to get a follow-up on what happened to this patient, Steve, but just one final point about this chat I had with Mike Press, which was, and he went through this whole thing about why, you know, fish is really the only thing that should be done. And I was like, well, should we even be doing IHC? And then he tells me this whole story about this study that you just described, Antonio. And not only was, I guess, this one lab where there wasn't a doc, a pathologist who was reading it, but that the person who was reading it was sort of looking at it and kind of estimating it. They weren't even counting the cells, which is like super scary to think that kind of thing could be going on there. And the scary part is that this actually occurred, I don't remember if his paper gives the name of the lab. Yeah, it's a major lab. Yeah, it is a major lab here in the U.S., and it's considered a reference lab, and a lot of local labs in smaller hospitals have decided to submit all their fish assays to a reference lab. I think this is just a reminder that volume by itself and being a reference lab alone is not sufficient. So I think we all need to ask questions. And some of it, I think, is going to be ultimately a combination of carrots and sticks to make sure that as long as we continue to have decentralized testing in the U.S., that the test is being done with the best possible quality, both in terms of assay validation and ongoing proficiency testing. So, Steve, what happened to this patient? So, she was originally begun on ovarian suppression and an AI. She was started on letrozole. Once the HER2 value was back, actually, in discussion with her, I added Herceptin along with the hormonal therapy. She had about a two-year interval on that combination with benefit and then had progression and went through a host of hormonal manipulations, including Fazlodex for a brief period of time, a steroidal AI, tamoxifen, and ultimate progression of disease with hormonal unresponsiveness, at which point she was begun on Navalbean and the Herceptin was continued on the combination of the venerelbine and Herceptin, she had a nice response, probably lasting at least six months, if not longer, and then ultimately progressed. Her disease has never been outside of bone. She's never had any visceral disease. 
and was treated with Ticarb and Zolota for a period of only about three months. And Antonia and I spoke to her about her tolerance to that. She actually did not tolerate it particularly well. She had diarrhea, no real rash, but did have progressive bony disease on that regimen and was taken off. And she and I had discussed various options. The idea that she could have a regimen that was not associated with alopecia was very important to her at that point. And she had never seen an anthracycline, granted that I was using trastuzumab. We talked about it. We checked her cardiac function very carefully. And she actually received over six months of therapy with liposomal doxorubicin and trastuzumab and had an excellent response with improvement in her bony disease and as best as we could measure it, also using tumor markers to try to guide us as to response. Most recently, she's had progression of disease with increasing pain. She has a lesion in the mandible, the right side, that's now seen on PET scan. Interestingly, she had some numbness, some paresthesias in that area almost a year ago, but this is the first time that the PET scan has actually shown a lesion there. She has increasing pelvic disease and was just started on gemcitabine with continued trastuzumab. So, Antonio, that initial or one of the early therapies being, it was an AI plus trastuzumab? That's correct. So, you know, that kind of reflects back By to... By the way, the reason she, very briefly, I think she had ovarian suppression, one dose, and we didn't even mention it, she's BRCA2 positive, as you might expect from that history. She underwent bilateral phorectomy, so she was obviously rendered postmenopausal very early in her treatment. But this combination of hormone therapy and anti-HER therapy without chemo is kind of interesting because it was first looked at Antonia with trastuzumab in the so-called tandem study. And then in the most recent San Antonio meeting, there was another report looking at lapatinib plus an AI. Can you talk a little bit about what those two studies show? In this situation, this woman had a two-year response. Yeah, and I think the major concern about these presentations is that, and I think this is well demonstrated by the tandem study as well as the other one with lipotinib, is how poorly these tumors that doubly express ER as well as HER2 how poorly these tumors do in that patients treated with endocrine therapy alone, their time to progression is quite short within 8 to 12 weeks. Half of the patients are having disease progression. That what these studies did was to test the endocrine therapy alone with the combination with an anti-HER2 therapy, one study with trastuzumab, the other one with lapatinib, and showing an improvement, a statistically meaningful improvement in time to progression. But on the other hand, from a clinical standpoint, the improvement was not that much significant. You're talking about an additional few weeks before disease progressed in the combinations with anti-HER2 therapy arms as well. And this highlights the outcome for these patients may ultimately not be as good as one would expect.